Hi, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Stranova, a bi-weekly audio business program exploring the intersection of cutting-edge business strategy and the innovations that can ignite business growth. As an entrepreneur with over 30 years experience leading high-tech organizations, I've constantly sought out new ideas that could take business to an entirely new level of performance. For Stranova, I've invited some of the most innovative business leaders out there and asked them to share their ideas with you. So sit back, listen, and consider what some of these new thoughts might mean to your business as we begin this week's episode of Stranova. In 1962, the visionary thinker R. Buckminster Fuller published the first ever ideas for a, quote, giant 200-foot diameter miniature Earth, end quote, which he intended to be the most accurate global representation of our planet ever to be realized. The idea was that, through the use of tiny multicolored electric light bulbs mounted on the spherical shell of this miniature Earth, and with those light bulbs driven by an array of computers, it would be possible to provide what Fuller described as, quote, a visually continuous surface picture, equal in detailed resolution to that of a fine screen halftone print or that of an excellent omnidirectionally viewable spherical television tubes picturing, end quote. This invention, which Fuller called the geoscope, would, in his own words, quote, make it possible for humans to identify the true scale of themselves and their activities on the planet. Humans could thus comprehend much more readily that their personal survival problems related intimately to all humanity's survival, end quote. He envisioned using this tool to help us see not just the global perspective of the interaction of man and nature, but also by accelerating the time element displaying historical information to more readily see the pace of change, since it's very difficult to see the dramatic changes happening to our world on a real-time basis. Since 1962, the technologies Fuller imagined for the geoscope have evolved in many ways, including both the nature and scope of the data we were able to gather about the world's vital statistics, along with both the way that data can be visualized in even higher resolution, full color, and with complex illustrative power, as well as the substantial increases in computing power to bring the data to the screen and the visualizations to life both as a technological marvel and a powerful strategic business innovation, the geoscope has been a holy grail of sorts for many researchers investigating it and working to find ways to bring Fuller's idea to full realization. For today's interview on Cernova, we have the wonderful opportunity to interview two brilliant innovators dedicated to just that vision, Bonnie DeVarco and David McConville. Ms. DeVarco describes herself as an explorer on the leading edge of visualization technologies and designs, lectures, and writes about emerging technologies in education, virtual worlds, collaborative visualization, next-generation geographic information systems, information visualization, and the culture of cyberspace. She has created and led conferences on the research and opportunities in cross-disciplinary problem-solving using advanced satellite and visualization technologies. In addition, from 1989 to 1995, she was chief archivist for the Buckminster Fuller Archives and is currently writing a comprehensive book on the history and applications of the geoscope concept. Mr. McConville is a media artist and researcher specializing in the development of dome-based display technologies. He is co-founder of a company called the Illuminati, that's E-L-U-M, 
M-E-N-A-T-I, a full-service design and engineering firm specializing in the development and deployment of immersive visualization environments and experiences. He is also currently working with the Buckminster Fuller Institute to organize the 2006 Design Science Lab, which applies Fuller's comprehensive anticipatory design science to developing strategies to address the world's biggest challenges for the future. We are very pleased to have them as our guests this week on Stranova. Well, David and Bonnie, welcome to Stranova. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us here. As a beginning question for our listeners, can you give us a little bit about where the whole idea of Geoscope came from? And I believe that it actually came back from what you've indicated, some of the earliest times of Buckminster Fuller's investigations. The Geoscope's a vision of Buckminster Fuller, I think, who's best known as from the geodesic dome, but he's also one of the greatest innovators and futurists of the 20th century. He was also referred to as Leonardo da Vinci of his age, and he called himself a comprehensive anticipatory design scientist. He was known for so many different innovations, two that I think were particularly important, perhaps the most important, were his geoscope, or miniature earth concept, and world gain of humanity in the shortest possible time to spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. And even in the later part of last century, nobody was quite putting the problems that are before us into that perspective. But where the game would ideally be played was in a miniature Earth. Fuller's mini-Earth environment is a concept that goes back well over a half century, to as early as 1928. And he put forth this idea of designing from the center of the sphere. This led to his designing of geodesic domes, which we are more familiar with, with the Expo 67 dome. But he also felt like he had to start with envisioning Earth from the center. Between 1948 and 51, he perfected his geometry to build geodesic domes, but he also perfected the geometry to create an icosahedral map that showed the world as a one-world island in a one-world ocean with no distortion of the relative shapes and sizes of the land masses. But you can't visualize trends of our Earth, much different than in the map, and also different from looking at the Earth from the outside. If you're looking at the Earth from the outside in a globe, you only see it maybe one quarter to one third of the Earth surface at any one time, but if you're inside of it, you see about five-eighths of it. If you're down at Antarctica, you can't see that landmass, but you can pretty much see the rest of the world above you. So the spherical environment enabled more of the Earth to be seen than any other way besides using a distortion-free map, which was very hard to do. And the greatest part of this idea was to link it to a computerized display of world data. So now, 50 years later, we're finally able to bring visualization and data together and we can go back finally to this spherical geoscope concept and say inside of a planetarium type of environment or an inflatable dome or sphere, you can begin to get an image of what Fuller had in mind. 
Now, what is it that you're both bringing to the table here? We'll get to the applications in a minute, but to make it more concrete to our listeners about how this might appear and and what actually is being created from a technology and innovation standpoint. I'm familiar a bit, but our listeners certainly aren't with Illuminati and some of the things there. Could you both kind of describe a little bit of how some of this might manifest in the ways that our listeners might understand that? There are a lot of different types of displays currently being developed and utilized to really maximize visual and oral immersion so that audiences can experience data in ways that until development of a lot of the technology recently hasn't been feasible or at least economically feasible in a lot of ways. For instance, there's a large network of digital dome theaters around the world now. A lot of planetaria are starting to use digital projection technologies. And what my company does, Illuminati, is create optics and hardware for these types of systems. There are a number of companies doing this. But what's interesting is that Fuller's vision of the geoscope was much like a planetarium in many ways. And the way that he envisioned geoscope happening by using small light bulbs or some types of displays that lets you view data immersively from the inside of a sphere is now very, very possible. What are the implications of having the ability to immerse an audience inside of the sphere and what is it that you want to relay to them? What can you really make visible that we can't perceive with our everyday perception? For instance, he discussed a lot of how we can't detect the motions over time of geography or of you know, shifting with land masses or population growth and migration and things like that. So from the contemporary technology perspective, I'm very interested in understanding the framework within which Fuller saw the importance of these types of displays within his comprehensive anticipatory design science approaches because he felt that that was very, very important to help people understand the planet Earth as our own spaceship, to be able to take that type of comprehensive view. To add to that, I think what what Beth described in the comprehensive anticipatory design science is the idea of matching all the visualization capabilities and tools with the conceptual tool set that allows you to carry out simulations and scenarios and story to the 250-foot diameter geodesic sphere. I think the large environments are very important. We're all familiar with what you can see through your screen in Google Earth and the scaled views and what happens when you're able to fly through time and space, or at least through space. And he envisioned flying through time by looking at curves of change. And I think going back to something that David can talk a little more about, a profound shift occurred when we all or those of us who remember seeing Charles and Ray Eames' amazing film, Powers of Ten, where you were starting to play with scale for the first time. And I know that Fuller and the Eameses were very good friends, and I'm sure that that had a cross-fertilization of ideas in the 60s and probably as far back into the 50s, where you're able to make, I call it a, a profound shift in perception, and immersion is a very important part of that. So while we can do 3D visualization on a flat screen, once you're inside, say, in a collaborative environment with 50 other people or 50 other players, you are experiencing something that Fuller termed 
micro-incisive and macro-inclusive. You're starting to see Earth as a whole system and experience this. This is kind of what I see as an evolution of a lot of uh, Fuller's geoscope ideas, is when you take it beyond just looking at data on the planet's surface and start to scale both temporally and spatially. Something we've been working on for a number of years is a project that was initiated through the American Museum of Natural History's Hayden Planetarium, and it's a visualization platform called Uniview that allows us to scale to any level of space or time. They overcame a number of technical difficulties with holding that much data in order to create a real-time, essentially video game-like interface to all of NASA's astronomy data. So we can start off, say, at the surface of the Earth and turn up simulation speed so we can see the space station floating around the Earth, go to any time in the past or the present, and then start to zoom back. And not being limited by the laws of physics, we can go much faster than the speed of light, traveling out to different planets, traveling out beyond our own galaxy, you know, turning on the constellations so we can see them expand into their true three-dimensional nature instead of just you know, the, the dome of the sky over our heads and we're used to seeing them as being in kind of one plane. When you zoom out past that, you see all of the stars that we see from the night sky being at different depths, connections between structures in the universe at all these different scales. There's been some pretty interesting experiments we've done with, you know, people from the age of five years old all the way to 90 years old, as well as with astrophysicists, for instance, who have been studying some particular quasars somewhere for their entire careers, but once they actually see them inside an immersive space, they actually understand their spatial relationship much better than they ever have. And I've, I've seen grown scientists jumping up and down laughing because they kind of have a new relationship to these things that they've been studying for a very long time. And so much of what Fuller discussed in terms of immersion and the importance of that, I've seen firsthand from people being intensely affected by this stuff. Because when you start to talk about astrophysics or you start to talk about you know, large-scale planetary changes, it can be pretty complicated when you're trying to describe it in words, but when you're showing it as a series of images, especially interactive images, it makes for an incredibly compelling educational experience. Well, it also does a related thing that you have the time element you talked about before, and that typically the things that we see happening on the planet Earth uh, are moving slowly, or in the galaxy are moving slowly, and you can effectively speed these things up so that people can actually have more of an impression of the large-scale systems that are really in play. The role of science in the 20th century really was to make the invisible visible. Even with frequency spectrum, we perceive a very, very narrow band of it. And it's the same with time. And so in order to fully appreciate what's going on in universe right now, we have to develop these types of tools to help us bring these phenomena into our perception so that we can really start to explain and address and explore how all of these phenomena are interrelated. And to do that, it really takes a combination of design and art and science and technology. And that was really something that he represented to a lot of people because he was always traversing these areas, these disciplines, these boundaries. And so much of what's going on now, I believe, in terms of science education, in terms of visualization, 
is dependent on really effective collaborations between people that consider themselves artists or scientists or designers and being able to break down all of those types of disciplines. I mean, for instance, he talked a lot about being able to view historic trends over time. We could look at growth of population on continents and then watch the migration of those populations over time. We can look at geological transformations. We can look at crisis zones to see where wars are happening. We can look at energy consumption. It is a very good point. Certainly one of the things that people constantly talk about is that of all the different ways that one can deal with information, visualization is one of the most powerful because you literally can perceive patterns, insights, and so on rapidly, far more rapidly than looking at sets of numbers or whatever that a computer has to deal with. Graphs are one thing, but seeing it in a more complex, realized visual form matters. Uh, as far as the immersion is concerned, too, even talk to one thing from my own experience, there are many different examples, but one here that I guess for our listeners may relate, and it's not directly part of Geoscope, but may give an idea of the immersive visualization power. When I was at Silicon Graphics, I worked quite a bit with some of the oil and gas companies as they were exploring what are some of the remaining reserves literally in the world for oil, because it is diminishing. And becoming more accurate in how you drill for two reasons, both so that you can get more oil out as well as so that you can protect the environment better, are critically important. And I was in a full-size, what's referred to, again, for our listener base, the caves, where literally you're immersed in a three-dimensional space, you're wearing special goggles to see three dimensions, and you literally can, with pointers held in your hand, walk your way down through an underwater oil field and be able to figure out the most optimum point to drill. It is a very powerful experience to realize what you are doing and the precision with which you are doing it, as well as being able to see the interactions of everything you're doing live and in color, as they say. I guess this is probably a reasonable segue. You know, you've talked quite a bit about ways this could be used, getting down to the, oh, I guess both practical as well as visionary on two extremes of it. Where do you see some of the major applications for what you both are talking about, where you expect to see Geoscope appearing in the near term for governments, corporations, as well as individuals? The thing that was real important for Bucky was that the average person or the average 10-year-old could use this as a tool as well and to get it to the low cost, even to get it to any type of reality where you bring all of that visualization together, we're only just at the breaking point of being able to make that happen. At California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology in San Francisco, it has a cluster of supercomputer centers and visualization centers that are working in alignment and creating new initiatives with grid computing and visualization. And what they are doing is a number of visualization projects, but a brand new one is starting to track the changes that global climate change might make on microorganisms. It's called CAMERA, another cyber infrastructure that will help us better understand the evolution of life on Earth. This is a huge amount of data that is all coming together, and this will be displayed on high-resolution geospatial satellite imagery. Imagine if we were to take some of these ideas, let's say for the common person, and you're visualizing, students are able to visualize their ecological footprint, say of just what Bucky talked about, world literacy, 
as global citizens that we could see our effect on the planet at the same time that we could perhaps visualize how a change of 400 people might affect the planet in certain ways as well. To pick up on that, you know, I, I always think back to the impact, and it was actually before I was born, but the, the first blue marble image that came back. I believe it's the most published image in history, and the impact that that had on us Earthlings with respect to being able to understand ourselves as global citizens, as seeing this as our home base and the spaceship that we're on. And something that I like to see evolve more in terms of application areas would be to explore how we can see the Earth as something than just the visible spectrum, to really explore a lot of the types of application areas that I was, I was talking about before, that full of spaces. Uh, and that's been explored to some degree with caves and head-mounted displays, like you mentioned. But something we've been doing with Uniview is adding the ability to network between multiple domes all over the planet so that a scientist of any discipline could come in and say, have a specific data set. If it's a, an archaeoastronomer, they could fly a number of people networked across the world down into Stonehenge, speed up time, and be able to watch the stars over Stonehenge you know, thousands of years ago. Similarly, a, a nanotechnologist could scale down in physical size and explain and run simulations and explain how nanotechnology works and looking at you know extruded carbon-60 molecules or something. Astronomers are a really good example because different astronomers with different specialties could fly out to different parts of the universe. Somebody that really anticipated this was Fuller's student at Black Mountain College, an artist named Stan Vanderbeek, who back in the 60s started doing a lot of this type of experimentation with dome projection as we help our species address the problems that are really facing the planet. Well, it's a good point, too, that when you talk about we have the technology and the tools, there's a number of things that have evolved, obviously, significantly since when Buckminster Fuller was alive, and they include, obviously, the enormous computing power that's available and visualization power at relatively low costs. It's still as expensive to do some of what we're talking about, but at the same time, a lot less expensive than it used to be. It's much faster, and the data is also available. There's a lot more digital data to be able to make use of, and even real-time data. So this visualization and modeling technology has now been enabled in a way that it really wasn't some years ago. To give you an idea, the Hayden Planetarium had a full room of SGIs when they first built their center, and they wanted to go real-time, and this was six years ago. And now the same database that they run with all those SGIs to look at real-time fly-throughs of the universe, I run on a laptop that weighs five pounds. So the advances that have been made in hardware and software, primarily because of the gaming industry, it's really remarkable what you can get away with with very inexpensive hardware now. And I really think that the limitations are no longer in the technology. The limitations really are in our own creativity and innovation. Well, now that we've moved into present day, one of the things that I wanted to ask you both about very much is a new project you're working on which could be seen as a logical extension of Buckminster Fuller's original work and yet is taking it many steps further, and that project is called Digital Earth. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what it means and how you're involved with it? The Digital Earth Project, which was initiated in 1998, it was a national and an international project 
very much inspired by Al Gore's statement on what a digital Earth could mean, and a virtual representation of the planet into which vast quantities of data can be embedded. But I think that group, which included a pretty broad consortium uh, from the corporate sector and the government sector, had also many of the people involved in that have been influenced in some way by Bucky's ideas. Whether it, many people at SGI, the founders of SGI, have been influenced by Bucky. Jack Dangerman, who started ESRI, the Environmental Systems Research Institute, which sets the standard for GIS, was influenced by Buckminster Fuller. Many people I've known at NASA and the original director of the Digital Earth Project, once it started to run out of steam and funding, had continued to keep this alive internationally for the last five years, Dr. Timothy Forsman. And he has established in the last five years the International Symposium for Digital Earth. In New Zealand in August, there is a sustainability summit that is the same group of people. We're bringing it back to America for the first time since it was the original NASA Digital Earth Project in 2007, June. We're really hoping to be able to show what a geoscope might look like and really grapple with some of the bigger issues of design science applications for it. David, this is along the lines of what you're doing with the Design Science Lab and the UN Millennium Project. Could you talk a little bit more about that? With the conceptual tool set idea, that's a real clear use of it. Sure, absolutely. So I'm working closely with the Buckminster Fuller Institute and a number of groups working with them to organize the Design Science Lab, which is at designsciencelab.org. The first one was last year in, at the United Nations. They just had another one at the United Nations a couple of weeks ago, and we're doing one here in Asheville, North Carolina next week, and it's a 10-day intensive lab to help participants understand the design science methodology that Fuller developed which is really doing a review of available companies to engage you know, governmental workers as individuals to really apply their own innovation and creativity to figure out ways that we can achieve these goals. The result of last year's lab was published and it's available online and a number of the folks at the UN were very impressed because what ends up happening is that the solutions developed are actually pretty simple. They're things that are kind of low-hanging fruit but, but they're just so they're almost like so simple that bureaucracies really might miss them. And so the lab that we're doing next week is focused on a regional approach to really try to understand what can specific regions, we're focused on the Southern Appalachian region of the U.S., but we have people coming in from all over the world so that we can figure out how specific regions can collect data related to energy, environment, health, and education from around their region to do an analysis on that to come up with strategies to achieve a desired state and then perhaps most importantly related to the geoscope is how do you communicate those strategies? How do you show the people in your community what's happened in your community over time and then to be able to extrapolate that out into the future to convince them this is where we want to go and this is why this is how we're going to get there. And geoscope really plays into that because it's really about communicating these strategies to try to help people to understand what seems like these very daunting problems in these huge data sets, but by breaking them down one by one and being you know, very scientific about it, but at the same time kind of taking intuitive and artistic approaches, 
as we get near the end of our, our conversation here, I know that our listeners are probably very interested in learning more about a number of these things, maybe taking things kind of step by step. If they wanted to learn a little bit more about what each of you are doing as well as it relates to the whole idea of Geoscope, are there some places on the Internet that you would recommend they might want to take a look? If you do a Google search on Geoscope, there are some very interesting quotes and sections from Fuller's books. He has a very large section in his 1980 book, Critical Path, on Geoscope. And if, if you just Google it, a lot of interesting things pop up. As far as different types of displays and technologies that are really evolving around this geoscope idea, like Bonnie mentioned, a lot of the digital Earth stuff. NOAA has a project called Science on a Sphere that projects global data onto a sphere that's viewed from the outside. Similarly, there's a, a product called Magic Planet from a company called Global Imagination that does something similar, as well as Arc Science Simulations has a product called OmniGlobe. I run a site called fulldome.org that's really focused on these digital dome theaters across the planet and really helping people to understand the technology and what applications can be used there. As I mentioned before, Ingo Gunther's site, worldprocessor.org, is a really interesting example to help you see you know, the different types of global mappings that can be possible. And that's just a, a static shot because he did them sculpturally, but we could illustrate those things over time. Talking about the digital earth, the original Digital Earth site is at www.digitalearth.gov. The upcoming uh, International Symposium for the Digital Earth is at www.isde5.org. 2004, I wrote an article called Earth as the Lens, Geocommunication, Global Collaboration, and the birth of ecosensience, which has about 96 different annotated or footnotes linked to sites and linked to many of Bucky's writings. I'm currently writing a history on researching and beginning to write a history, a comprehensive history of the geoscope via FI's pages, www.bfi.org has a special page on the geoscope. That's at slash node, N-O-D-E, slash number 564, that's 564. And I'm very excited to announce that Stanford Archive, Stanford Green Library Special Collections, has just completed a digital media collection that's part of the Buckminster Fuller Archive. And they have put up more than 300 hours of Buckminster Fuller, Medard Gable, and Edwin Schlossberg talking about the game as it's used on the big map and some of these larger comprehensive anticipatory design science approaches using this visualization. And that Earth as Lens article is probably the best place to start. If you want the broadest overview, Bonnie did an amazing job really looking at a lot of these technologies and putting it all into a great context. If, if people wanted to reach either of you directly, how might they be able to do that? I can be reached at info at Illuminati.com. It's not the world cons worldwide conspiracy, it's the other one, E-L-U-M-E-N-A-T-I.com. And I can be reached at Divarco, D-E-V as in Victor, A-R-C-O at Cruzio.com or my website at www.mediatertia.com, M-E-D-I-A-T-E-R-T-I-A. Well, 
Thanks to you both very, very much for a very interesting conversation. I'm sure that our listeners will probably want to actually back up and write down some of those things that you just heard. We will have some of these links on our website as well. Bonnie and David, I wanted to thank you very much for joining us on Stranova. Thanks so much for having us, Brad. Thank you so much, Brad. It was great. As I thought about today's interview and its impact on me, I was reminded of what was one of the most pivotal high school classes I ever took. No, I'm not talking about physics or math, though those obviously made an impact, or the outstanding history classes I took. I'm talking instead about the photography part of the year-long art class I took in my junior year. In that class, our instructor emphasized that anyone can take photographs, but that the art in photography is about developing the ability to see. To see the chiseled crevices in an old log, and through waiting for the sun to hit in just the right way and catch the right angle from the camera to bring it to light or to see the way an array of bottles and colors dances in what the instructor called a syncopated series and know how to capture that, or to see the way ordinary objects sometimes line up, like walls on either side of a path running off in the distance, to provide focus on a distant child walking towards you. So, too, does the power of tools like the geoscope in the hands of creative thinkers like our guests Bonnie DeVarco and David McConville help us illuminate and see the impacts of our living patterns on global warming and international conflict among other things. We can only hope that this particular class of strategic innovation, which brings light to things that may be hard for each of us to easily see with unaided eyes, could perhaps, by making our own shadow impacts on the world more visible, and by taking a form which is perhaps more readily available throughout the world for more and more people to see, help us to understand further what we're doing to ourselves and what our Buckminster Fuller called our spaceship Earth and perhaps through this understanding to create the impetus for an even more revolutionary global shift in our consciousness and actions in all things. That's our show for this week, and thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about any of the topics in this week's show, please visit our website at www.stranova.com, and be sure to look at the current programs and resources pages for some interesting insights on our speakers and recommended links to related reference materials. If you have any comments on our show or suggestions for people to invite for future shows, please do contact us at ideas at stranova.com or leave us a short voice message on our Stranova comment line at area code 408-849-4394 or via Skype by a click from our homepage. This recording is copyright 2006 by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson thanking you for listening and looking forward to talking with you next time on Stranova.